Fred Stone, Fred Sloan, boy, did I mispronounce that terribly, Fred Sloan here to unfold God's word for us, but please stand as we read Philippians 1, 1 through 14. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I told you, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the, to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to the advancement of the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word of God without fear. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. Um, we thank you for the hope that is there. We thank you for the challenge that is there and the encouragement is there. Uh, we pray that you would speak to our hearts now uh, according to our needs. And we lift this time up in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Very happy to be with you this morning. We, um, our family is greatly appreciative of you and this church, the uh, ongoing ministry that you have to our family and have had for many years. We're deeply grateful for that. It's a privilege for me to be here with you this morning. I'd like to read the text, specific text we're going to look at just one more time in Philippians 1 verses 12 to 14. Paul writes, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. The title for what I'm speaking today is Paul's Great Love, The Progress of the Gospel. A couple of subtitles that uh, I would give you that I kind of contrast Paul's great love. There's a popular song called Looking for Love, looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for love in too many faces. 
And we live in a culture that's looking for love, but they're not finding it. A second subtitle would be how not to grow up to be a bitter old man. Now, some of us are getting old, and we understand that challenge. Some of you young guys maybe not don't know that, but uh, maybe maybe your mothers see that a little bit in you. Uh, we kid one of our grown sons about how he used to whine and complain because he wanted his mother to make him a sandwich for lunch. <laughs> he was quite able, body young man. And his mother, being wise, would not do it, but he would attempt to, um, through a little bitterness and sadness, try to lean on her. And that kind of tendency can come to all of us as we grow older. Let's pray and ask God to help us now as we look in more detail. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is reality, it is truth. It is guidance that you teach us how not to be those who are lost, searching for love in so many places, that you give us a means whereby we, as we grow old and life closes in, we don't have to be bitter. We thank you for the Apostle Paul and this letter to the Philippians. We pray that these words might come alive to us this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Grace and I were here two weeks ago, and I was standing right down here before the service uh, talking to Steve Donahoe, and while we were talking, people started laughing and screaming, and just joy, joy was breaking out in the back. And I said to Steve, uh, somebody's really happy today. Somebody's very joyful today. And Steve said, yeah, Graham gave Samantha a ring yesterday, and people are seeing that ring, and they're filled with joy. And as I thought about Philippians in this text, I thought about the connection in, in Philippians. Philippians has a lot to say about joy. It's a book that's known for joy. It's also known for love, and the connection that Paul makes there between love and joy. We want to look at that today. If I were to give you a big idea or a thesis, I would say true love produces true joy. True love produces true joy. Or joy flows from true love. Life has many trials. There are many challenges. There are many difficulties that come our way in life. We can lose a job, we can have tension in our marriage, tension in our family, we can have tension in the church, we can lose joy. Think about how we rejoice when something we love happens. We love children, we rejoice when a child is born, we love hunting and fishing, we rejoice when we can spend a day hunting and fishing. We love clothes. We get great joy in shopping to find just the right outfit. We love baseball. We have great joy when the Cubs win the pennant every couple hundred years or so. But we have joy over the Cubs. 
We have lesser loves. These loves are not evil in themselves. Hunting and fishing is not an evil in and of itself. However, if I become so devoted to hunting and fishing or shopping that I ignore my wife or my husband or the family, then something has gone wrong. I'm always amazed how when I come to speak, everything that's been said in our confession of sin and the prayer points exactly to what we're going to talk about there. You see, love can easily turn to idolatry. We can take good things and turn them into a God. A God is something we love, and we believe that that God can make us happy, that I can have real happiness if I do enough of this. I can have real happiness if I find the right wife Idols, as I say to the men in the prisons, idols always or almost always work in the short run. It's what makes them attractive. But idols will always destroy us in the long run. So it's important that we understand idols. and We understand love and joy and how they relate to idols. Our culture has taken these concepts of joy and love and they've completely distorted them. The culture equates joy with love. It doesn't distinguish very well joy and love. It conflates them so that love becomes an emotion. This love is really an infatuation. We marry someone for the love we feel from them. We marry someone because they are the perfect person for me. When the joy, the infatuation leaves, the marriage is over. Hollywood marriages, some of them last only a few days. It's tragic. It's sad. But when you conflate joy and love, that's what you get. The question for us today is, is there a love that never lets us down? Is there a love that can bring joy, not only in this life, but eternally? Is there a love that will bring other joys into their proper balance? How does the Bible and Philippians specifically define love and joy? What is the relationship between love and joy? This greatest love is foundational. It's formative. It keeps other loves from becoming idols. It does not disappoint When I find myself, when you find yourself discouraged, how do you find joy? Philippians 4.4 might be the most famous verse in this book. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. As I said, this might be the most famous verse in Philippians, but we come to it often moralistically and superficially. We read it like this, I'm not joyful today, the Bible commands joy, so I will just ignore my sadness and smile. I will act joyful. I'll take that frown and turn it upside down, and I'll have a joyful day. I submit to you that this joy is superficial and a misreading of Philippians. It may get us through a particular day, but it's not the joy that Paul had in mind. Philippians gives us the key to the joy that bubbled up in the life of the Apostle Paul. 
As we dig into this book, we see that Paul had many reasons not to be joyful, yet he was filled with joy. What is the basis of his joy? To what do we have to look at Paul's definition? To do that, we have to look at Paul's definition of love. When you love what Paul loved, when you learn to grow in that love, joy will overflow from your heart like an artesian well. An artesian well is a well that doesn't need a pump. The water just comes up like a spring. Most of us today dread the lights flickering in our houses, the power going off because our wells stop working. We no longer have water and all the implications of that. The question this morning is, when the power goes off in your life, does the water of joy keep flowing? That's the message in Philippians. Let's begin by looking and digging into Philippians. We want to look at four things here. The first one is the context of these three verses. The second thing is, what is God doing in Paul's life? Verse 12. The third thing is the results of what is God doing in Paul's life? Verse 13. And verse 14, the chain reaction of what God is doing in Paul's life. So let's talk about the context first. And you do good Bible study. One of the things you want to do is look intently at a verse. You want to look and read it and think about it and memorize it and mull it over so that you understand the details. But just like we talked about Philippians 4.4, you can master that verse and miss the point of it because it's given in a context. There's a context that we must understand. And so when we do good Bible study, we look at the verses intently. We also look at the paragraph, the section, the book, and we see what's the overarching message of the section, because that feeds into that verse. So we use the verse to help us construct the context. We use the context to help us understand the verse. So I want to illustrate how that works a little bit this morning. If you'll look back in chapter 1, we've spoken on this in the last couple of weeks, but just to refresh your memory, look at verse 3 in chapter 1. Paul says, I thank God upon every remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy. Paul is filled with joy and he's praying for them, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day till now, being confident this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul is looking at the big picture of salvation. We use the term monergistic. Salvation is a work of God. Salvation begins with the work of God alone. And Paul is looking at what God is doing in their lives. And he says, what God began in you, he's going to complete. How far? Till the day of Jesus Christ. What is the day of Jesus Christ? It's the day that Christ returns, the day that Christ takes his church, the day of the final judgment when he vindicates the church and the believers and the unbelievers are cast into hell. God is going to be with you and what he has begun, he's going to complete in you. It's a work of God. But now look at 
the section that Pastor Pritchard preached on last week. Notice verses 9 to 11. Paul says, This I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Just as one sixth has looked at salvation monergistically, so one nine to 11 looks at it what we call synergistically. Sanctification is a process in which God works, but we cooperate with him in that. But it's a work of God. Notice there in verse 11, all these things that he's talking about are by Jesus Christ. So that when these things happen in our lives, we don't puff ourselves up and say, boy, I'm a gra- aren't I a great Christian? No, we're humble because we realize that the promise of 1-6 is coming out in our lives through the work of Christ. But we are participating in that. What is it that he prays for them? His prayer is that your love would abound. He wants a love that is growing more and more. And it's a love that's rooted in knowledge. It's not a love that's rooted in emotion. There's something to know in order to love the way the Bible and the way Paul loved. There's something to know. But there's more to it. There is discernment. What is discernment? Discernment is the ability to take knowledge, things that I know, look at the circumstances on Tuesday and say, yeah, I know this, I believe this, therefore, this is what I need to do today on Tuesday. That's discernment. Discernment takes knowledge and moves it into life. Notice what else it involves. That you may approve the things that are excellent. Love that is abounding in knowledge and discernment makes choices. It approves the right things. It doesn't just say, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I ought to do this, but hey, I'm not doing that. No, it makes right choices. I'm going to do that. It makes choices that are excellent. Notice the end, the end of it. That you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. You see, these verses have the same trajectory as 1-6. It's the day of Christ. The work that God is doing to take you to the day of Christ. Paul has laid out a plan for us to participate with Christ working in us so that we come to that day of Christ. How? Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ. On that day, we don't parade ourselves before God and say, wow, you know, I was a member of Evergreen. I read my Bible every day. I talk to people. No, we come and we say, Lord, the longer I've been a Christian, the more I realize what's going on in me. It's the work of Christ. And I'm here today because of Christ and what he's done. And so the trajectory is to the praise and the glory of God. Now, what is that knowledge? We said that love is built around a knowledge that's able to discern, that is able to make good choices. Turn with me over to chapter 2. We're going to read ahead just a little bit. We'll come back to this in our preaching and look at it in much more detail. But notice in chapter 2, therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, 
if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy. There's those two terms, love and joy. How do we do that? By being like-minded, having the same love of one accord, of one mind. Notice the emphasis on the mind, the thinking, the knowledge, the discernment. It all comes together here. Paul is talking about how it comes together here in relationships with people. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above everything, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth, and that every tongue should confess the Lord Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The knowledge, the knowledge that love has is Christ. And what did he do? He humbled himself. And then what happened? He died and God raised him from the dead. That's the knowledge that drives love. That's the knowledge that gives discernment. That's the knowledge that drives making choices that are excellent. And then he goes on, and we're going to skip some of this. Notice verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is a call to work it Work at love. Remember in one nine, I pray that your love would abound more and more. We could summarize this by saying that love is knowledge. Love is discernment. Love is an emotion that looks forward. Notice what Paul says in verse 16, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. It is that same trajectory. Paul is talking about the same thing. He's pointing them to the day of Christ and the kind of love and the kind of knowledge and discernment that they need for the day of Christ. Notice verse 17. Yes, if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. See, Paul sees the real possibility that his work there in Philippi will be wasted. That's what a drink offering is. It's a precious wine in the temple that's poured out on the ground. Paul says, that could be my ministry in Philippi, but I'll rejoice. How can Paul rejoice that he's wasted? Because he serves a God who raises the dead. Think about who the apostle Paul was in that first century. In fact, let's go on and let's look at that. Go, go now to our second point. The second point, what is God doing in Paul's life? The focus on the gospel. Back in chapter 1, verse 12, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. The greatest missionary in the history of the church is not being inducted into the hall of fame of great Christians. 
He's in jail in Rome. He's being wasted. He's being poured out. But is he bitter? Is he grumbling? No. Notice what he says. I want you to know that the things that have happened to me. He's drawing their attention to himself and to his own example. Look at me, because if you want to understand how love works and what it means for a Christian who knows Christ and knows that Christ was poured out and God raised him from the dead, God did something that no man could do. If you want to know what that looks like in a person's life, discernment, look at me. Look at what's going on with me. And what is it? The things that have happened to me have happened for the furtherance of the gospel. I want to encourage you to read this book and read it every week before you come here. And I want you to look at the pronouns. Look at the the pronouns where he uses first person. And look at the pronouns where he uses second person. And look at the pronouns where he uses third persons. You'll see there that Paul lays out himself. In chapter 2, we read, he lays out the example of Christ. The end of 2, he lays out the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus. In chapter 3, he comes back to himself. And what do they see? What is the greatest love of Paul's life? It's the gospel. The glory of God is set forth in the gospel. You see, this is the greatest love that should supersede every love. It's this love that gives meaning to every other love. It's this love where our culture is looking for love in all the wrong places because they don't understand this love. But you do, you can understand this. Now, how is this happening? Look at verse 13. Results of what God is doing in Paul's life, the evidence But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Notice that it's become evident. There is proof. There is evidence to these pagans. I'm in Rome, and I'm chained to these rough and rowdy and nasty soldiers. But there is an evidence that grips them. It grips them to the point where they want to know more about it. You can hear one of these soldiers going home because these men were choice men from all over the empire. They were pagans from all around. And one soldier goes on, his dad asks him, well, what was it like in Rome? Well, I spent a lot of time chained to a prisoner. Oh, that must have been awful, son. Those prisoners are nasty. They're terrible. You're, you're, you're chained to him? Yeah, Dad, but it's not what you think. There's something different about this man. This man talked about a Christ, a man named Jesus who died on a cross. Oh, well, he must have been an awful man. He was a terrible criminal. How can that be meaningful? Because this man said he rose from the dead. And he spoke of the 500 who saw him. This man is alive. And this man is a brilliant man. He can quote vast portions of the Old Testament. 
He's been around the Mediterranean world. He's a missionary. He's in jail. He's shut down. You'd think he'd be bitter, but he's not. He's filled with joy. Dad, this man, there's something about this, and it's become evident to me that what this man is saying is true. And it's not just to me. Look, it's become evident to the whole palace garden and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. It's become evident that this man knows this Christ, and this Christ has been raised from the dead, and this Christ is seated in heaven. How do you know that? This man has a love for people. His love for Christ and people has overflowed. He's a joyful person. He's in a miserable place. He's innocent, but he's joyful. You see, those chains are in Christ. When Paul was chasing Christians to put them in jail, Christ stopped them on the road to Damascus, and he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul was converted. Right now, through Paul, God is saying, Caesar, Caesar, why are you persecuting me? You see, the very things that symbolize his humiliation, his deep humiliation, are the very things that give evidence to the fact that he is united with the risen Christ. Here's a man filled with love because he understands the cross. And because of that, there is an overflow in his life of joy. You see, joy flows out of love, the right love, the right kind of love. Let's look quickly at our third, our fourth point, the chain reaction, I called it. Verse 14, and most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Notice he says most. He doesn't say all. You'll, you'll find out about that next week. But notice what's happened. This, this thing that has overcome Paul, this love and this joy, and the work that they see going on around him has emboldened the Christians, so that the work that Paul can't necessarily do, they've taken up the job, and they, they are doing it. You might say, how do chains create confidence? How does humiliation create love? How does humiliation create joy? You see, it's the message of the cross that most awful moment when an innocent man was put on the cross. It's the message of the cross that comes through in the, the ministry of the gospel, in the ministry of the life of the apostle Paul that is pouring out to the people around him because he is gripped with the gospel. And so are they. He says they are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul's love for the gospel is rubbed off. 
You see, if you let go of fear, you can be bold. You can speak of the gospel. You can be humble. You don't have to have every answer, but you can witness to the work of the reality of Christ in your life. This morning as we close, I have two questions for two different kinds of people. The first question is, do you have a God like this God? What's the idol you worship? Is it hunting, fishing, clothes, your job? What is your idol? Is that the God you worship? Are you chasing a love in all the wrong places? The song says, I was looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for love in too many faces, something their eyes, looking for traces of what I'm dreaming of, hoping to find a friend and a lover. I'll bless the day I discover another heart looking for love. That's how people grow up to be bitter men. That's how you get to be an old and bitter man, because you're chasing the wrong love. This morning, if you're outside of Christ, if you've never bowed your knee to Christ, I invite you, whether you're a young man, young woman, an older man, I invite you to bow your knee to the one who's worthy of love, that you might have the joy that this one gives. The second person I want to talk to is Has your love for Christ and the gospel grown cold? Have you lost sight of the day of Christ? Is your attitude one of complaining and grumbling? Have you decided, I'm not dying for that person? Has your belief in the resurrection faded? Do you really believe God raises the dead. Isaiah 57, 15 offers this great hope. It speaks of God who dwells in a high and a holy place. This morning, as we've expounded this word and looked at this, there should be no one here who is not convicted of something. This preacher at the top of the list, it, it gets right where I struggle. It tells me right where I am. I see a holy God, and I see a sinful person. But the second half of Isaiah 57, 15 says that God dwells with the humble. The great and high and holy God who inhabits eternity, he dwells right here with the humble in heart. So I invite us, invite you this morning Whatever your state, we're going to pray. And I ask you to just bow your head and say to the Lord, what has the Lord been saying to you this morning? What does he want you to do with his word here? What has he shown you about love? What has he shown you about joy? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We come before you, Lord, as sinners. We come before you as those who need repentance, not only daily, but 
hourly, moment by moment. Lord, forgive us how we grumble, how we complain, how we look for love in all the wrong places, how we allow bitterness to creep into our lives. Lord, refresh us with this table this morning. Refresh us with this word that we may seek you and find you in the gospel. Lord, refresh our belief. You are the God who raises the dead. We give you praise and we give you glory for that. In Christ's name, amen.